I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. What's going on, Celtics Nation? Happy Monday. As usual, it's me, Adam Taylor. As usual, I'm joined by Mr. Greg Manakis. And we're actually going to be discussing a win. Uh, I'm shocked as you. I am as shocked as you. Greg's face, if you're watching on YouTube, if you aren't watching on YouTube and you want to, head over to Adam Taylor NBA on YouTube and you hit that subscribe button. Greg looks happy. I mean, I'm happy. We, uh, there was a win. I woke up today and I watched a victory. It's been a long time since I could say that, man. How are you feeling today, Greg? I feel so good, man. Like Sundays are always difficult for me this season, especially because I record one podcast with Will and then I come and record a podcast with you. So I'm doing two podcasts in one day. And if I'm doing two podcasts in one day about a really crappy Celtics game, then I, I just struggle, man. Like my my mental health just isn't there. And today I feel great, man. I was up at 7 a.m. I was doing a film study. I recorded a video, doing a little coach's corner, went to the gym. Just feel great, bro. I feel great. Um, I love I love everything that I saw from the Celtics in that last game. I'm so, so happy that I didn't have to do the Friday pod because if I had to come on to that podcast that you did with Will and Macri, which is a great podcast, by the way, if you didn't listen to that, go back and listen to that. Um, I, I don't think I would have been able to do it, man. I would have cried on air. I'll, I'll tell you what, dude. So full disclosure, I watched the first half of the game last night. Like, um, So I was in bed. I was like, yo, let me. I'm still awake. Let me just turn the game on. I'm not going to analyze it because I haven't got my notepad with me. And I, I've can't, I just want to watch as a fan because I cannot remember the last time I watched a game, a Celtics game as a fan. So I'm chilling, I'm watching the game, you know, it's nearly two in the morning by the time it's halftime, I'm like, I'm going to sleep, forget this. But like, um, it was enjoyable, man. Like even like, I, I still think the, the best part of the, the game was the second half. That was when they really turned it up. Um, but even just waking up today, not knowing the score, but knowing that they weren't playing terribly was a nice was a nice feeling when I come to sit at my computer and I'm like, right, I'm gonna rewatch the first half because I wanna get my notes in. But then I'm gonna re then I'm gonna see the second half for the first time. And I can kinda and then like you, you watch it and you're like, man, the movement's great, but it's not just the ball movement, the player movement's fantastic. I get that the Knicks are a little bit depleted. I get that, but the same team minus Evan Fournier like managed to beat us like two, three days ago. Like I feel good, man. I think that uh it wasn't the statement win that a lot of people probably feel it is because at the moment any win feels like a statement win, mm-hmm. but it was definitely a this is what we're capable of type of win. Do you know what I mean? It was a sit up and take notice. Yeah, for sure. And I think that was a gift from the basketball gods, you know, after two really, really tough losses to the Spurs and the Knicks, the fact that Fournier did not play in this game, they were just like, hey, like if if we'll take Fournier out of it, you guys can't beat the Knicks without Fournier, without Derrick Rose, like, you know, without Kemba Walker, then you don't deserve to win. And the Celtics deserve to win last night. They played great. I was very happy to see the ball movement. As you said, I was very happy to see the player movement Um, guys, you know, we didn't take I, I don't have the numbers right in front of me about how many threes we took, but it didn't seem like we were overshooting the three. Um, we were just getting getting to the basket. Jalen Brown had a great game, obviously, with that triple double. Um, and I, I'm just I'm just happy today, man. I'm happy to talk about the Celtics. I'm happy to talk about a win and um, ready to ready to get into it with you. Yeah, man. I mean, I think for me, the one question I want to ask you and then we can go into our Sunday yeah. format. I know we want to keep this one quite succinct is. 
if Evan with okay, how can I put this? Does this game mean more to you if Evan Fournier plays and the Celtics still win? Like, do you find that as is that a more um how can I word it satisfying? Yeah, a more more uh, yeah more satisfying, more kind of justifying. There we go. It's more of a justification victory if Evan Fournier is on the floor. For sure, because I think, you know, he's killed us this year, and I think it's always good to see, especially if you're going to be in a playoff scenario against the Knicks or against a team, how you adjust in a back-to-back scenario, right? Evan Fournier lights you up, hits 11 three-pointers or whatever it was in that last game, and how are you going to adjust? How are you going to take him out of the game? So that's what I was actually really looking forward to, to seeing is what adjustments Udoka would have made and what adjustments the coaching staff would have made to take Fournier out of the game or at least not let him get so hot. Um, which we didn't get to see, but we still saw some great stuff. Um, the adjustments that were made, I think, on the offensive end of the court, guys really looked locked in. They really looked committed to playing team basketball. So that's really what I was focused on. Those back-to-backs, we have another one against the Pacers this week. Um, how are we going to adjust from game one to game two? Because I think as much as it helps the players grow in back-to-back scenarios, it also really helps you understand what the coaching staff is doing and how much work they're putting in behind the scenes to make those adjustments because most of the time, all we see are the games, right? We don't see what they're doing behind the scenes, and that's what most of the job is. You know, A lot of the job that we see is not a lot of the job, right? Coaching in the game, yes, that's probably the most important part of the job and your adjustments, that you can make in-game in case your plan doesn't go according to plan. But all the stuff that they, they do behind the scenes, and it was nice to hear Udoka talk about this and Jalen Brown talk about this, the fact that they are focusing on these like individual film sessions. Um, and I just like to see the adjustments. So I'm looking forward to the Pacers back-to-back, and I was happy to see those adjustments in uh, these Knicks games. Yeah, I like the way that Brian was like, oh, I've been putting coaches in after every practice, like got 30 minutes to an hour of extra film work, looking at where I missed reads, what reads I could have made, where I need to be looking in terms of how the system's laid out to make reads and be better. And then he goes and gets 11 assists. So, you know, it's definitely a work in progress. I still stand by the fact that I don't think Brian will be an elite playmaker, but I do think that, you know, he's showing... Yeah, he's showing signs of being a competent playmaker, which is great. Uh, we're going to stick to our usual Sunday format because I could talk about this game and what, how happy it made me for the entire 35 minutes, uh, which means we can start off with our winners of the week. Who have you got for your winner of the week? Um, I think, actually, Adam, what we do first is we do our progress report. <laughs> uh, <for laughs> the want- report this was our progress report. We'd already covered the progress report. We can do the progress report. So, uh, I'll, I'll give you a brief synopsis of mine. Okay. Players moved along with the ball. Everything worked good. Great spacing. We're looking at, you know, we're, we're very big now on having the wings handle the rock and it seems to actually slowly be working. Defense, good. Offense, good. Collapsing down the stretch, bad. Winning a game, very good. That's my synopsis for the week. <laughs> okay. Well, my progress report is uh, on Robert Williams. Um, So I was actually thinking back as we went into these games with the Knicks, a conversation that you and I had probably off air a while back where you were talking about how Mitchell Robinson was a guy that you were interested in in seeing Rob go head to head with as kind of a measuring stick for him. This was last year, definitely not this season, but last season. And to see Robert Williams go up against Mitchell Robinson, and in my opinion, um, Rob, you know, being undersized at the five position going up against Mitch, who's huge. Um, this was a, a guy that 
I think a lot of people would expect Rob maybe to struggle against due to his size and athleticism. But in those back-to-back games, I I was of the opinion that Rob dominated that matchup. I don't know about you. Let's just start there. What did you? What? How did you feel about how Rob played against Mitch? Yeah, so I think Mitch can really assert himself around that dunker spot, and I think that he'd done a good job of that throughout the two games of kind of being in the dunker spot and knowing when to slide towards the basket for either the rebound, the put back, or the dump off pass. And I think that when Mitch got there, he was kind of a foul magnet. You know, it was very difficult to block his shot because of his size and strength. So you had to send him to the line. And that's fine because his his free throw shooting is not great. But in terms of like actual impact on the game, I mean, what was it? Seven blocks for Rob in the first game. Um, I'm not sure how many blocks he got in the second game. Four. Four. 11 11 blocks in two games. 11 blocks in two games. Uh, he was more of a lob threat. I think he was more of a, a defensive threat as well, a defensive presence, because unlike Mitch that has to be played predominantly in drop, you can ask Rob to switch out onto the perimeter and contest guys that are going to shoot threes. You can ask Rob to... Rob can play drop, but he can switch a lot, and he's super versatile in the way he can uh, he can get up and down the floor. And I think that's what set him and Robinson apart. Robinson's far more dominant in once he's in that dunker spot. But as an overall player, I think that Rob Williams has the advantage, and we saw that shine through throughout those two games in terms of blocks, in terms of the way that Robert Williams can screen and roll and then offer you some creation out of that role or offer you a vertical spacing threat off that lob. I mean, come on, Marcus Smart hit a half-court lob pass to Rob Williams simply because Rob Williams was running the floor. It's that mm-hmm. type of outlet that you wouldn't get with Mitchell Robinson because he just doesn't have that burst. Yeah, and he's, he's, not he's as, kind of lumbering, right? The way yeah, he, he always looks tired getting up and down the court. Mid-90s, he would be the ideal big man. Now, yeah, not so sure. much. Like, I like him as a rim protector, but I just don't think... I think that when they came into the league, these two players were on a very similar footing. Rob's injuries allowed Mitch Robinson to progress. So coming, you know, into their second and third year, Mitch Robinson was probably a bit of a better player overall. But since Rob has stayed, Touchwood relatively healthy and been given those minutes, uh, I think Rob's far surpassed Mitch Robinson in terms of skill set and, and um, impact on games. Yeah, and it was really interesting to hear the the national broadcast talk about Robert Williams because they were so impressed with what he was doing in that game against New York. Um, his hustle stats against the Knicks in New York were crazy, man. In addition to those seven blocks, he had two deflections. He recovered three offensive loose balls. Uh, no, two offensive loose balls, three defensive loose balls, so five loose balls recovered. Um, he contested 12 two-point shots, three three-point shots, total of 15 contested shots. He had three box outs. The Celtics only had like four or five box outs that entire game. And um, so he had five total box outs in that game. So he was just he was just all over the place. Um, I love looking at those advanced stats and the hustle stats to because I, I think everybody looks at blocks and look at steals, but deflections is one that I'm always interested in. Um, just for reference, Jason Tatum had three deflections in that game in New York. I thought he was awesome in that game. But this is a dream scenario for Celtics fans in terms of Rob's defensive presence. He needs to be elite on defense for this team to be at its best. And he's not going to be the greatest post player, right? He might never be the greatest post player. That's not really his skill set on the off- offensive end. But as long as he can facilitate offense from the high post and be a, an elite lob threat, and then he can have this defensive impact in which, you know, RJ Barrett, shout out to him for hitting that final three-point shot, banking it off the glass. But Rob was blocking every single thing that RJ Barrett was trying to throw up towards the rim that game. And I think Rob was just completely dominant. In his last five games that he's played, 
He's averaging a double-double, so 10 points, 10, 10 rebounds, 3.7 assists, 5.1 steals and blocks combined. Those are called stocks, so 5.1 stocks. His last 10 games, he's at 11 points, 10 rebounds, 3 assists, 3.9 stocks. And for reference, his season averages are 9.8 um, rebounds. He's averaging 8.9, 1.7 assists, and, and 2.9 stocks. So he's definitely playing great basketball over his last 10 games, especially over his last five games. And I think if he can continue on this level and the, the Jays can get it going, hopefully the Celtics can turn this thing around so that we're not crying every time we come on a pot. I mean, no, I mean, I'd like to do some positive pods. Those numbers tell you one thing: that Robert Williams is impacting the game, both on the box score and actually in terms of hustling. And you know, for me, it's I'm I'm always far more interested in how the product looks on the floor, and then look at the numbers to see if the numbers Definitely. back up my assertion. Yeah. Um, and I think that when you look at Rob Williams, it, I very rarely feel the need to go and check the numbers because I'm like, yo, the dude dominated, like. And even in his quiet games, you know, it's how many how many times did a player pass upon a shot because Rob Williams was sliding over to him? How many times did a player turn a drive into a pro dribble because they didn't want to risk that shot around the rim? How many times? You know, what I mean, it's, I think that Rob Williams' presence and just the fact that he is so bouncy, um, I think, and I've said this on this show multiple times now, I think his improvement as a screener has been compl like completely understated this year. Definitely, like, like, screening is a skill. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, the quicker we would accept that, the better. So I'm, I'm big on Robert Williams at the moment. I think that extension was some really smart um, smart bit of business by Brad Stevens, buying kind of low on a guy that struggled with injury, knowing that there's a huge upside there. So no, I'm a big Robert Williams guy. I don't think he develops into a guy that's the third head of a big three. I think that he might fall like one tier below the requisite skill level to be that third big three. And that's not a bad thing, but I think mm -hmm. he could be the starting center on a Celtics team that won a chip. Yeah, for sure. And, and to talk a little bit about his screening uh, impact that he's having, he's getting so good at flipping screens. And there was one play that I went back and, and really analyzed last night. It ended up in a missed shot, um, but Jalen Brown was on the left side of the court Marcus Smart initiated the the offense. Jalen caught the ball, and he had Alec Burks on him. And you can see Rob is motioning to JB that he's going to flip the screen, which ended up getting us a wide-open three-pointer in the corner. But JB and Rob were like developing some really good pick-and-roll chemistry because he signals that he's going to flip the screen. Taj Gibson doesn't see the signal, and JB takes one hard dribble towards the middle of the court to get Rob – a space to flip that screen goes behind the back and Burks is completely at a disadvantage and JB comes off of Rob flip screen RJ Barrett's on the block and JB just literally just gets the ball right to, to Richardson in the corner it was a beautiful play he got the ball out early Richardson missed the shot but Rob's impact as a screener and his IQ to let Jalen know like hey I'm gonna flip this screen and yeah. we're gonna get a wide open shot that was all Rob's IQ getting that shot Jalen made the right read but if Rob doesn't initially tell him I'm flipping the screen we probably don't get that and this is where like screening as a skill is actually really important because it's very easy to kind of push your arms into a guy and just make contact and be like yo there's your screen but you don't really take the defender out of the play right and then as you say once you improve there you can start flipping the angles on screens if anyone watches um follows me on twitter you'll see i tweeted one out earlier where rob set a wedge screen to get brown down into the paint 
Fun fact, though, do you know another name for what, uh, for flipping a screen? So it's like a re-screen, right? You screen and you flip the yeah. angle of the screen again. Yeah. Do you know and do you know another name for that type of screen and why it's I do called not. that? So it's called a Varajau screen. Screen. Oh yeah, Andy Varajau. Yeah, he did that yeah. all the time because he was the one that popularized that type of screen. Mm-hmm. So similar to an Iverson cut, it's called an Iverson cut because it used to be ran a lot for Alan Iverson. So <laughs> yeah, Ver- <laughs> I I think, thinking back on that, that is, that is the skill that Anderson Barajal used to use a lot for sure. Yeah. The and, 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 screen. and it makes sense to me why he would have done that too. It's because he was playing with LeBron James where a lot of people will go under screens. So if you go under screens, it makes sense to flip the screen so that you can get that guy a, a second lane to the basket. Yeah. So it was kind of like a, a necessity that he ended up flipping those screens because LeBron didn't have that shot, you know, to pull up behind a, behind a screen if you went under it. It's interesting. Just some uh, pointless, uh, pointless trivia for you just in case you're ever at a basketball trivia session something i i kind of found interesting was obviously and i think this was a huge talking point throughout the day and there's going to be people on either side of the fence and i kind of want to use it for my progress report is jason tatum and obviously what perk said the first time then what perk said on the post-game interview after mm-hmm. um tatum had responded so obviously Perk was like, yo, Jalen Brown played great. Tatum didn't really play that well. Tatum responds. Perk then on the post-game shows basically saying, like, look, what I'm what I was trying to say was I want to see these guys have good games at the same time rather than one has a good game, one game, one has a bad game. You know, and we've said that on this show. So to kind of to chastise Perkins for it would be hypocritical, especially of me having said that and wrote about that over the season. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a time and a place to to kind of put that out there, right? And then there's a time to just be like, yo, one of the two guys just got a career-high triple-double. But it made me look at Tatum's last two games, and this is what I found interesting. So on the two games... Just the, game, the games against New York? Yeah, because I, like you know, him and Brian have been back together. It's two games where they've both participated for four games. Uh, we've got a small sample size of that through the year. But just I was very curious because it did feel like Tatum went off in game one. Brown went off in game two. So I was just looking at points, and this is kind of just something interesting. So over the two games, Tatum accumulated a total of 55 points. He also accumulated a total of 10 assists because he had nine in the first game, one in the second. Rebounds, he had six in the first. He had four, so you know he had three. So there's nine rebounds as well. Right, his shooting splits in the first game were three of eight and one of six. No, I'm looking at Horford, sorry, 12 of 21 and six of 11. And then his shooting splits in this game were six of 14 and three of eight. So it's like, but if we all remember that Tatum's first game against New York was very much every decision he made down the stretch was the right decision, every pass he made was the right pass. He really kept that offense ticking. And there were times where he had to go into his own, look for his own shot because nothing was available elsewhere. The Knicks did a great job of closing down some of those off-ball actions, and it left Tatum on an island. You fast forward to this game, the second game, where Jalen Brown's playing. Jalen Brown's the one making the right decisions, but the team, but the Knicks are kind of shading Tatum out of it a little bit. You know, I feel like um, it's very hard to ask these two guys to both play at an elite level when one of them has to be an initiator and one of them has to be a floor spacer. And it still leads us back to needing a a dominant ball handler. That's going to be the issue for a while. But I think that 
I've come to terms with the fact that these two are your elite guys, but one of them has to be your floor spacer at all times because there's no other high-level shooter on the roster that's going to really command the level of attention required to space the floor enough on the weak side. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we've seen them take turns. Now, is that the greatest thing in the world? No. But is it something that could get you enough victories to really turn the tide of the season so far? I think so. Look, you can't look unless you've got somebody else initiating the offense for you. One of these guys is going to have the ball in their hand, and the other one of these guys is going to be on the on the weak side. Now, we did see, and I will give credit Perkins credit for this because he mentioned it before the game, and we did see it down the stretch. We did see a bit of a two man game working between Tatum and Brown down the down the stretch, and I think that's a way to counteract the need for an, an addition, a primary ball handler in the short term. But I think in the long term, teams are going to wise up to that two-man game and they're going to start shading that away from you. So they're going to start denying the ball more, denying the cuts more to get into those two-man games. So I think that for my progress report, it's at the moment, having one go off and one play well is about as good as we can expect until you put them in a position to not need to do so much as an initiator. Yeah, and just to talk about that idea of one of them needing to be a floor spacer, I agree on some level, um, and I, I would imagine you'd agree with this uh, at the same time. Like At the end of games, going back to that game on Thursday where Jalen Brown gets one shot attempt in the final eight and a half minutes of the game, and Marcus Martin and Jason Tatum are literally the only people to score in the fourth quarter, Like at, so, at some point, you know, and this is on Udoka to, to make this decision, at some point you got to get Jalen Brown out of that corner. Right. And you've got to get him in the action with Jason Tatum. And the issue that has been the issue is that we have Marcus Martin, Dennis Schroeder on the court at the same time. You can't really put one of those guys in the weak side corner because they're not much of a threat. Um, so I, I saw somebody tweeted at you today and you said that you would agree with that. And you and I have talked about this. Like Josh Richardson's probably the guy that should be on the court in the closing five because I think he can hold those corners well and he's enough of a. Um, enough of a creator where if he gets the ball kicked to him on the weak side that he's going to be able to do something with it. Um, so that that's kind of what I want to see a little bit more. Not necessarily just a two-man action with Tatum and Brown, but just not having one of them stand in the corner for a five and a half minute stretch at the end of a game, right? You gotta you gotta mix it up a little bit. You gotta diversify that offensive package. And to me, the the first step is Dennis Schroeder can't be playing down the stretch. But I actually I actually liked how Ime managed Schroeder's minutes in this last game. The fact that he sat Dennis Schroeder for the entire third quarter. I think Perk mentioned it on the on the post game that he was like, hey, he didn't play Schroeder in the third quarter because he didn't want to mess up the offensive flow. And that offense was really humming in the third quarter. And when Schroeder pretty much played the whole fourth quarter, the offense didn't look as great. Like the fourth quarter wasn't a great quarter. We had just surmount built such a big lead and the Knicks didn't have anything left in the tank where it was just like in the bag pretty much halfway through that quarter um but yeah that that's kind of just my initial feedback on 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 that idea yeah I mean if you're gonna if you don't want Brian or Tatum operating as your like weak side floor man which is like floor spacing guy which is usually in the corner then you do need to run a Grant Williams or a Josh Richardson there they're your two best options right now that are going to command enough respect to provide you the space and you need and then you know you can start running interchanging plays where you have brown start out in the corner receive a flex screen and then cut baseline to receive the ball and do whatever and then whoever set the flex screen pops out to the free mm-hmm. like but 
as you say, when you run Sch- Schroeder, Smart, and Rob Williams, that's almost impossible because whoever pops out to the free in replacement of Brown, the team, the defense will sag off, and it just it, you, that spacing is completely dead. Mm-hmm. Um, do I think Schroeder's a bad fit on this team? Yes. Have I said that since the day they signed him? Yes. My initial yes, tweet yeah. the day they signed him was sigh. I literally tweeted the word sigh, S-I-G-H, because I just knew we'd get to this point where the offense looks considerably worse when Schroeder's on the floor, mm-hmm. you know? And there, like, there, there's a, in my opinion, there's a place for him on this roster. It just, like, can't yeah, be. Yeah, at the end of the bench. <laughs> He's averaging 32 minutes a game, and I know that's partially because he had to fill in so many times as a starter. But last night he played 21 minutes, and I think if Schroeder's playing 21 minutes – and leading up until that fourth quarter, he must have. He was probably at like thirteen going into the fourth quarter because he didn't play the whole fourth quarter. Like that's about what you want out of Dennis Schroeder is go in there, give us a spark, give us some energy, and like if you don't have it, then maybe you're playing ten minutes that night. You know, yeah. the max number that I should see out of Schroeder, in my opinion, is twenty five. If he plays more than twenty five minutes in any game, there's an issue there. I would like to see that average right about right around twenty. And I think if he if Ime learns to how to utilize Dennis, I think he could be a real weapon for us. It's just not in the closing five. And that's fair. That's fair. I think if he utilized Dennis Schroeder correctly, it'd be for a couple of picks or a second round pick. I think that's the best <laughs> way to utilize Dennis Schroeder. <laughs> I, um, I agree. I agree. So next <laughs> next up, we got a fun stat of the week. Oh, I just want to mention one loser yeah. before we do that. Uh, we don't have to go into it too deep. There's only one loser from this week, and it's Jabari Parker. Um, oh, you're already going to winners and losers? Well, yeah, we've said it would be succinct. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't I haven't even given you my winner yet, though, man. Okay, um, I just gave you my loser. Okay, let me do my loser then. My, my loser's Dennis Schroeder. <laughs> Fair enough. But, because, like, I think it's time, like, just basically what I just said, like, it's time for him to have his role significantly reduced. I mentioned those minutes numbers. I think he could be the winner in this situation if he accepts that 20 to 25 minutes per game and is okay not putting up the big numbers. But Schroeder came here because he didn't get the money that he wanted in free agency and he wanted to build up that value. And, you know, he being a 20 to 25 minute role player on a team is not going to get you $100 million. What's going to get you $100 million is putting up 20 points a game, you know? So, Schroeder's goal coming into the season, it's probably not going to be met. And it seems that like maybe this is the time in which Ime is recognizing that. So for me, my loser is definitely Dennis Schroeder. Um, my my winner, I'll go into my winner and then we'll finish with fun stat. Uh, my winner is Jalen Brown. So he bookended his week with two career firsts, put up his first 50-point game on Sunday against the Magic. And then he ended this week with his first career triple-double. And this is why I think it's just like so premature to give up on Jalen and to give up on the experiments of the Jays. Like, yes, he's 25 and it feels like maybe he should be a more complete player right now. But I really think there's this like this special quality to him, man. Like in his on-court interview, he mentioned, as we talked about earlier, that he's been spending this extra time in film with the coaches. He's looking at reads. He may mention that he's been trying to tell Jalen to keep things simple and not play in a crowd. And I think that was the difference last night was Jalen's timing. You talked about this a lot earlier um, in a couple pods ago is that he doesn't make passes at the right time. He doesn't make his reads at the right time. And aside from an ugly stretch in the fourth, which coincided with Dennis Schroeder also being on the court, I thought he had a great playmaking mentality.
and he was seeing all the reads exactly when they happened. He was getting rid of the ball early. Sometimes it was by a full step or a full dribble earlier than he has in the past. And as a result, I think those um, passes were on time and on target. And going back to our discussion about like everyone was talking about Jalen Brown versus Ben Simmons a couple weeks ago. This is why I think you bet on Jalen Brown. It's because he's willing to put in that work, as he talked about in that uh, in that post game press conference. He puts in the work all the time. He always exceeds expectations. He's one of those guys where, like Will, Will and I were talking about this earlier. We were talking about Fred Van Vliet, um, and I was just saying Fred Van Vliet's one of those guys that, like, everyone else has taken stairs and he's taken escalators. He's taken elevators. Like, he gets to these levels that you don't expect him to get to quicker than most people, right? And with Jalen Brown. I think every time you think he's at the end of the staircase or he's about to get off the elevator and that's the ceiling, he takes it up to one more level. And this is the next level that he could get to. And to me, it's just all about the work being put in there and just like making a a focused commitment to try to improve your playmaking in the season. And last night was a great first step. As we say, these are small sample sizes, but it's better than another game in which he has zero assists. Yeah, I can get with that. Like I said at the start of the show, I don't ever think he'll be an elite playmaker, but I think he'll be a competent playmaker. I think there's a there's scope for that to happen with like um with with him making quicker decisions, smarter reads, understanding when to pass and when passing is actually uh non-beneficial to the team. And I think that as as his IQ grows, if he's genuinely putting in the work to grow his IQ in that manner. Uh, I think he could become quite a competent playmaker. And then that really eases the the burden on Tatum as an initiator. And it kind of minimizes or at least reduces the urgency of bringing in a ball handler. So, uh, yeah, I'd, I, I had to, I had Brown as my winner of the week too. The only difference is I had um, Jabari Parker as my loser. I think whenever you get away from a team, you have to be classified as the loser of the week. Um, I'm kind of good. I'm a bit sad as well. You know, like I think that Parker... Well, not perfect, still was able to get off the bench and give you buckets in bunches when you needed them. Um, you know, he gave you a bit of a three-point shooting presence, however inconsistent it was. Uh, but also, I just want to see the guy do well, man. I mean, he's had a rough career. It's been tough for him. Uh, he looks healthy. He does. And then, you know, I think there was times where they ran him as a small ball five, especially at the end of last season where he looked like a viable defensive piece and playing in drop as the small ball five. He looked at, he looked mobile enough to really be able to not thrive, but remain in the league with that role. You know what I mean? So I'm hoping I see him get picked up by another team. Oh, he, uh, I, don't, I think he definitely will. I don't think he was awful by any stretch for the Celtics. I understand the reason to make the move. What I don't understand is why wave a guy to re-sign him to wave him again a few months down the line and just add an extra million plus onto your uh, Anti tax for the year, salary. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they they gave him a chance, man. I I think they gave him as much of a chance as they could. Um, I wish he probably would have gotten a little bit more of an opportunity um, when COVID hit because I think he, you know, he maybe could have made an impact. Um, those games in which Ime just decided to not not play anybody, he was just like playing seven guys or playing eight guys. Like, why not throw Jabari out there, man? Let him let him do his thing. I thought he should have gotten minutes over Wancho all year. Anytime Wancho played over him, I was like, what are we what are we doing here, man? Like, Jabari is definitely a better player than Wancho. Has a higher ceiling than Wancho. Wancho's just been terrible all season. Um, this is one of probably one of the first Wancho uh, shoutouts, and I'm sorry it's so negative. Um, but he, he just hasn't been useful at all for this team. And Jabari was useful in spurts, man. He would come in and he would change games from time to time. There's probably at least a handful of games in which Jabari came in and literally changed the tide. 
because of his presence on the offensive end. He never did it in the second half. It was always just like in the second quarter. He he did some stuff. He never got those chances in the second half. Um, but I think that, you know, the organization gave him his shot. He looks healthy. He came out of this experience still healthy. There are plenty of teams out there that need a guy. And listen, man, if Lance Stevenson is getting minutes right now from the Indiana Pacers, there's no reason why Jabari Parker should not find a roster spot somewhere in the league. I think with his size and his health right now, there's a team out there that could use him. And I really hope he gets picked up by someone in which he's not just like in basketball obscurity. Like I don't want to see him on the OKC Thunder. I don't want to see him on the Kings or anything like that. I want to see him on a team in which he might have a moment this year. You see, I'd be happy to see him on in basketball obscurity because it means he's going to get realistic minutes, you know, minutes where you could actually make an impact. Uh, let's move on to a fun start of the week and then we'll, uh, we'll let you get up out of here, man. So, um, yeah, my fun What's stat fun is stat? it's not an advanced stat whatsoever. The Boston Celtics held a 20-point lead. That is my fun stat of the week. We had a 20-point lead. We're on we, got it. we got it in the second half, and we held the 20-point lead. I mean, we've blown, what, four ni- leads of 19 points or something like that this year, and the fact that we got the lead later in the game – um, is is a is different because I think in most games in which we we are feeling it and we're playing well, we get that lead early in the game, and then it's just tough to hold on to. Even harkening back all the way back to the bubble in which we got up on the Miami Heat like three of those games in in that series, and we just couldn't hold leads down the stretch. Very similar thing here, but we just played well enough where we took the Knicks' soul. Um, the Knicks had nothing left in that fourth quarter. And we held it. I even felt confident enough with about four and a half minutes left to send out a tweet saying that the the Boston Celtics should do this more. We should get 20-point leads in the fourth quarter, and then we'll be able to hold them. If we get them in the second quarter, that gives teams plenty of time to come back. And I even said at four and a half minutes left, I said, this one's in the bag. And some guy was like, you jinxed it. I was like, nah, man, like this is a game. You can feel those games when it's over. And that game was over about five minutes left. Yeah, you could feel it it from like, two minutes into the fourth, to be honest. You were kind of yeah. just like, yeah, this one's done. So my fun stat of the week is two separate numbers kind of pointing at the same thing. So it's the number two and the number 50. Okay. Now, it's because the Celtics won two games this week, which was 50% of all of their games. So they're at 0.500 for the week. What I'm hoping for is next week they go to 0.66, or 0.7, or whatever it may be. So we play four on. games next week. Yep, so that we want them at 0.75. You know what I mean? Three and one. And the reason mm-hmm. I've, I've chose this as a fun stat is because this week, this past week, has been one of the more difficult in terms of finding... Like I haven't wrote much this week because it's very hard to find narratives that aren't completely and utterly borderline abusive. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, it felt like they'd lost a lot more this week than what they actually had. You know, mm-hmm. that Orlando game was a win, but it kind of felt like a loss yep. because you had to get to overtime. Can you imagine if we lost that game? Yeah, but it felt like that, right? Just because of the fact that you had to go to overtime in the first place. Uh, the, the loss to the Knicks was a real kick in the teeth. The loss to the Spurs was another tough one to swallow. And then, obviously, you get the win to end the week. Uh, I think that, for me, it's more about and I put this in a piece I wrote today, I can live with the losing if it looks like you're trying to play in a way that's conducive to long-term success, right? So, you know, if you play like you did against New York on Saturday 
on Monday against Indiana and lose, I'm completely fine with that because you're playing in a way that will eventually lead to sustainable success. Mm-hmm. If you play the way you did against San Antonio on Monday against Indiana, well, I'm not going to be as pleased because it's not sustainable and it's not conducive. So, yeah, I mean, that's my fun stat of the week. They won two of the four. Felt like they only won one of the four. I'm hoping they can win three or four this week coming, and I'm hoping each one of them feel like a legitimate win. Yeah, and there's a there's an alternate reality in which the Celtics go one and three in this past week, and there's an alternate reality in which they went three and one. You know, um, yeah. so it, what do you say about that? I mean, there's an alternate reality where they went four and zero. <laughs> a legitimate alternate reality where like every opportunity was there for them to actually do that. They were leading mm-hmm. in each of those games. Yeah, I told my buddy who was asking me, he always like lets me know when he's betting on the Celtics. I was like, listen, man, do not bet on the Celtics until they win three three games in a row because that hasn't happened. I don't know if it's happened this season, but it hasn't happened very often. Um, they need to win three in a row. So they, they, they're they on a one-game winning streak right now. Uh, we got the, Here's so, my tip. Go ahead. If the Warriors have lost in their previous game, back them to win in their next one. They haven't <laughs> lost two games in a row all season. Right. I know. And they got Clay back, man. Clay's back yeah. tonight. So now just back them to win every game from now to the end of time. <laughs> um, right then, everybody, if you've enjoyed the show, make sure you scroll down, hit that five star button. Make sure you leave a nice written review. And if you don't own an iPhone, and that's okay, you know, not everybody's an iPhone person. Some people are completely against Apple. No judgment here. I've been there. Then Greg's going to tell you what you need to do. Yeah, man, just tell everybody in your life um, that you think might be a a basketball fan or a Celtics fan if they're interested in getting into basketball to tune in to the Celtics pod on the Celtics blog podcast because Adam, Greg, and Will got you. We got you with the stats. We got you with the fun conversation. We got you with the guests. Um, The Boston Celtics this week have four games. They got the Pacers back-to-back tomorrow and for you tonight and Wednesday. And then we got a huge back-to-back um, against the Sixers on Friday and the Bulls on Saturday. And we're going to learn a lot about this team uh, this week in these in these four games because I don't know if 3-1 and one is um, is likely considering we have the Sixers and Bulls, but it's, it's something that we're looking forward to. So all these people that you're talking about with the Celtics, um, tell them to tune in this week, see what this team's about, and tell them to tune in to the Celtics Pod podcast here on the Celtics Blog Pod. And we like talking basketball, but we talk food just as much. Just remember that. <laughs> we did a good job on this pod keeping it. We did, bro. We, we we did. We've been like really going on some tangents. So thank you for everyone that just like enjoys the conversations where Adam and I just go galaxy brain. Um, but this one was strictly basketball for you, and hope we hope you enjoyed it. Happy Monday, y'all. Peace. Ain't disrespecting you haters, I ain't sweating your opinion Y'all been testing my patience, never did it for a check I've been impressed with the famous, just rather be creative Than stressing my wages, ageless Every time I lay a verse down, one play at a time Keep it moving like a first down And at the end of the day, I can say that I made this MJ never made it to the majors, still he chased greatness Expected that he might fail, and I might too I might never get to pop champagne, celebrating with